It's Thursday, April 27th. I'm Trayvell Anderson. And I'm Josie Duffy Rice. And this is What A Day, where just when we needed it most, and just like that, dropped its season two trailer. Will it be good? Surely not. Will we watch it anyways? You betcha. Che Diaz? Haven't heard that name in years. (laughs) Probably for the best. On today's show, House Republicans narrowly passed a bill to raise the debt ceiling. Plus, if you have some spare cash laying around, now's your chance to try to buy Freddie Mercury's mustache comb. But first, on Wednesday, Disney sued Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in federal court, claiming that the governor and the five-member board that oversees Disney World had engaged in a, quote, targeted campaign of government retaliation. It was an escalation in the conflict between DeSantis and Disney, which is largely over Disney World and the surrounding area where the company has self-governing powers. We've been following this kind of, you know, tit-for-tat situation with Disney and DeSantis for a little bit. But for those who don't remember, let's rewind a little bit. How exactly did we get here? I think it all begins with Ron DeSantis being the pettiest person on the planet, is my (laughs) current operating theory. It's been a long and arduous journey. It has somehow resulted in me rooting for the corporate behemoth that is the Walt Disney Company. And it all started about a year ago, last March, after DeSantis signed into law the Don't Say Gay Bill, which we talked about a lot on the show, explicitly anti-LGBTQ law that restricted schools from discussing sexual orientation and gender identity. For weeks after DeSantis signed the bill, Disney actually stayed pretty quiet. Mm-hmm. But eventually, after you know their employees and the community spoke out, they also spoke out against the bill, right? Stating that, quote, our goal as a company is for this law to be repealed by the legislature or struck down by the courts. So after that, as everyone can imagine, DeSantis handled it great, <laughs> like a real adult. He definitely did, right? He immediately sent out a fundraising email saying, quote, if Disney wants to pick a fight, they chose the wrong guy. You know, very big chested of a comment there. You know, very bold of him. About Disney World, by the way. (laughs) We're talking about Disney World. Okay, so that was a year ago. What has happened since then? You know, other than Ron DeSantis referring to the company almost exclusively as Woke Disney. Yeah, which, by the way, is, like, not a good nickname. It's just saying Woke before the company. It's not smart. (laughs) He's basically spent the last year doing whatever he kind of can to strip Disney of its self-governing powers, which it's had for, like, 50 years. So Disney basically controls the area immediately surrounding Disney World. And Ron DeSantis is basically trying to stop that. In February, he signed legislation that allowed the state to take control of that area that Disney currently runs. And instead, he handed control over to a, quote, tourism oversight board that DeSantis handpicked. Unfortunately for the governor, the area's outgoing leadership at the time signed a development deal that reduced DeSantis's ability to take over the area by giving Disney, and I quote, authority until at least 21 years past the death of the last surviving descendant of Britain's King Charles III. You may be wondering why would they do that, and it is because of the dumbest legal principle on earth called the rule of perpetuities. It has been around for a gazillion years, and for some reason, it still comes up. Apparently once every, I don't know how many years, because I haven't heard it since law school. (laughs) It's also really interesting, the whole, like, Britain's King Charles III. Like, how he get into this? He's like, why am I in it? Very that. Right. <laughs> so, obviously, I'm sure DeSantis wasn't happy about that. 
He was not happy. He was not expecting it and has basically been pushing back since. And so on Wednesday, he and his handpicked board voted to invalidate that agreement, the 21 years, King Charles, King William, King whatever, Arthur, Louis. <laughs> they voted to invalidate that agreement. And within minutes, Disney filed their lawsuit, claiming, among other things, that DeSantis has violated their First Amendment rights. And this lawsuit does not mince words. It says, quote, this government action was patently retaliatory, patently anti-business, and patently unconstitutional. But the governor and his allies have made clear they do not care and will not stop. It also stated that, quote, Disney now is forced to defend itself against a state weaponizing its power to inflict political punishment. Yeah, I'll just repeat that thing you mentioned earlier about us now rooting for the House of Mouse. Who would have thunk it? <laughs> I certainly would have. My whole paycheck goes to their toys, and I'm furious that I'm not rooting for them. <laughs> okay, so now what? What happens after this point? So now a district judge will hear the case, though I suspect this will not be the end of it. This will certainly be appealed and maybe even go to the Supreme Court. But for now, DeSantis has kind of an uphill battle because this case is going to U.S. District Judge Mark Walker in Tallahassee, Florida, who was appointed by Obama and has already struck down some of DeSantis's political stunts in the past. He even called some of his legislation, quote, positively dystopian. It's going to be a tough one. Mm -hmm. I do want to say that the Disney deal is weird. It is weird that Disney, like, has a deal with the state where they get to just run a city. <laughs> Doesn't make a lot of sense to me structurally. However, DeSantis has managed to find the most depraved, horrific, immoral reason to push back. And so once again, here I am standing arm in arm with Mickey Mouse, I guess. <laughs> Life comes at you very fast. I think I love or hate that for us. Not really sure. In other anti-LGBTQ news... That is the sound of Montanans earlier this week demanding that the Republican leadership of the state's House of Representatives allow Democratic Representative Zoe Zephyr to speak. She's been effectively silenced, and just yesterday, the House decided to, you know, formally show their ass, voting to censure her for the duration of their session. As we've mentioned on the show, Zoe became the first openly transgender person to be elected to Montana's state legislature last year, but she has been blocked from speaking during the House's current session since last week when she rightfully told her colleagues who were supporting a bill to ban gender-affirming care for young people that they would have, quote, blood on their hands. I'll remind everyone under the sound of my voice that the health care that some trans people require is not only supported by literally every major medical association, but it is also life-saving. But of course, Republicans don't care about any of that. And those in Montana's House of Representatives accused Zoe of violating decorum and using accusatory language. And because she refused to apologize, they've voted to punish her. Here is Zoe speaking from the chamber floor yesterday. I have had friends who have taken their lives because of these bills. I have fielded calls from families in Montana including one family whose trans teenager attempted to take her life while watching a hearing on one of the anti-trans bills. And in that hearing, our caucus pleaded with the Republican chair of the Judiciary Committee to not allow certain testimony to keep decorum. And we were told a lot of people have a lot of opinions on these things. So when I rose up and said, there is blood on your hands, I was not being hyperbolic. 
I was speaking to the real consequences of the votes that we as legislators take in this body. And when the speaker asks me to apologize on behalf of decorum, what he is really asking me to do is be silent when my community is facing bills that get us killed. He is asking me to be complicit in this legislature's eradication of our community, mm. and I refuse to do so, and I will always refuse to do so. So just tell us a little bit about what this vote means. So the Montana House voted 68 to 32 to censure Zoe, which means she is banned from attending or speaking during floor sessions. She will be allowed to vote on measures, but only remotely. And this will last through the end of the current session, which is May 5th. But, you know, what's particularly insidious about this is that, you know, while they are literally silencing Zoe, they are also passing bills to harm trans people and queer folks in the state. Not only did the bill that led to Zoe being silenced pass, but so did one that legally defines sex in binary terms based on if a person produces eggs or sperm. There was also an amendment to an online privacy bill that prohibits the distribution of drag shows online and an education bill that would, get this, require written consent from parents for a child's preferred names or pronouns to be used in the classroom, but it does not also require those teachers to use said preferred name and pronouns, even if consent is given. It really doesn't make any sense. And we've been saying that trans and queer people nationwide are experiencing a legislative assault. And this is yet another example of that. Right. And reemphasizing what you said, like Zoe has been told at this point she can't talk. She just has to sit there silently as they pass bill after bill after bill. I mean, it reminds me of what happened just a couple of weeks ago in Tennessee with the Justins. Yeah, right. Those racist Republicans in Tennessee's House voted to expel state representatives Justin Jones and Justin Pearson about three weeks ago for using a megaphone on the chamber floor during a gun reform protest. Though both of them have been reinstated, I think it's safe to say, right, that we're seeing a pattern of behavior in Republican-controlled state legislatures where if they don't agree with somebody or if they don't like how someone attempts to hold them to account, they're going to do what they can to silence and or remove them. As another example, we should mention that the same silencing also happened to Oklahoma Representative Maury Turner, who we've had on the show before. Maury is the first and only out non-binary lawmaker in that state, and Oklahoma Republicans overwhelmingly voted last month to censure and strip them of all their committee assignments. Basically, there was a bill passed that bans health care for young trans people and limited or prevents health insurance plans from covering such health care at any age, which effectively is, you know, a ban on trans health care for adults. In outrage, a trans person threw water on a Republican lawmaker and resisted being detained by an officer. Republicans say Maury allowed that person to hide in their office, which they say impeded a law enforcement investigation because Maury was, quote, harboring a fugitive, which, you know, give me a fucking break. That's not what Maury was doing. That's not harboring a fugitive. Like, let's be serious. Like, have these people ever seen a movie? Apparently not. 
But, you know, Maury was given two options to either apologize to law enforcement or be censured. And they said, quote, I think an apology for loving the people of Oklahoma is something that I cannot do. I will never apologize for showing up fully and freely as myself. I will never apologize for allowing the people of Oklahoma to show up fully and freely as themselves because that is the work that they elected me to do. It's infuriating. No, it absolutely is. And, you know, before we wrap, I definitely want to say that, you know, as a trans person, as a black person, as, you know, someone who is, you know, a marginally engaged citizen, I especially am so fucking tired, right? Mm -hmm. These people are not only saying the quiet part out loud now, but it is legitimately a coordinated effort. And if you don't see how these anti-trans efforts are connected to the anti-black ones, which are connected to the anti-immigrant ones, which are connected to the anti-bodily autonomy ones, you're really just not paying attention. Mm -hmm. You know, I know they accuse all of us of being woke and whatnot, right? But it's definitely time to wake up and see kind of the concerted effort that's happening here. Absolutely. More on all of this very soon because they won't leave us alone. But that is the latest for now. We'll be back after some ads. Let's wrap up with some headlines. Headlines. House Republicans yesterday narrowly passed a bill that would raise the national debt ceiling by $1.5 trillion for about a year. The legislation was approved in a very close 217 to 215 vote, largely along party lines, and as expected, with more strings attached than Snoopy at the Macy's Day Parade. As we've discussed on the show before, the bill, led by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, also calls for big spending cuts and policy changes. It would require stricter work requirements for Medicaid and food stamp recipients, block student loan forgiveness, cut various climate change measures, and more. All bad ideas, one after another. But here is the good news. The bill actually doesn't really stand a chance of becoming law. And that is because President Biden has already threatened to veto it should it make its way to his desk. And it's unlikely to pass the Democratic-led Senate anyway. So Republicans see this vote as a strategic victory to push President Biden back to negotiation talks over the debt ceiling. But meanwhile, as House lawmakers discussed the legislation yesterday, Biden told reporters, quote, I'm happy to meet with McCarthy, but not on whether or not the debt limit gets extended. That is not negotiable. Now for an update from Sudan, where two rival Sudanese commanders have been battling since April 15th, which has left over 500 people dead and 4,200 wounded. Fighting in the nation's capital of Khartoum reportedly continued yesterday, despite a three-day truce announced by U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken earlier this week, though there are indications the ceasefire could be extended. And while foreign governments have evacuated their diplomats and citizens from the area, Sudanese civilians are searching for ways to escape the violence themselves. According to witnesses in the city, many residents who've been trapped indoors took advantage of the lull in fighting yesterday to find food and water, lining up outside of grocery stores and bakeries. Others decided to join the tens of thousands of people who have chosen to flee Khartoum. Some have made the harrowing journey through the desert to the Egyptian border or to the city of Port Sudan. Sudan on the Red Sea coast in an effort to leave the country altogether. The UN's refugee agency says it is anticipating a, quote, large-scale refugee crisis in Sudan because of the fighting. 
Lawyers representing Adnan Syed, the subject of the popular serial podcast, filed a motion on Wednesday asking for a Maryland court to reconsider its decision to reinstate his murder conviction. You may remember that Baltimore prosecutors vacated Syed's conviction last year after discovering new evidence in his case. He was freed from prison after spending 23 years behind bars for the murder of Heyman Lee, his former high school girlfriend. But last month, an appeals court reinstated Syed's conviction because young Lee, Heyman Lee's brother, wasn't given enough notice to attend the hearing that granted Syed his freedom in person, though he did attend on Zoom. The court argued that this violated the Lee family's rights, but Syed's lawyers argued in yesterday's motion that Young Lee's physical presence wouldn't have made a difference during the hearing that overturned their client's conviction, and that by siding with the Lee family in their decision, the court was awarding them, quote-unquote, special treatment not even available to criminal defendants. Syed is currently still free, but his supporters worry that he could be taken back into custody depending on how the case plays out. And I do want to say, I've never seen this happen. Never. I've never seen someone's murder conviction be reinstated. It's really quite nuts. Super odd. Because he was there virtually. Right. Like, what would his physical present change? Mm -hmm. Turns out when they're not busy being flagrantly shady individuals, the Supreme Court justices have also been hearing cases. The Supreme Court on Wednesday seemed poised to side with a 94-year-old woman who is suing a Minnesota county for selling her condo and pocketing all the profit just because she forgot to pay a small property tax bill. The case dates back to 2015 when Geraldine Tyler lived in Hennepin County. At the time, she owed the county $2,300 in property taxes plus interest. So to settle the debt, the county seized her one-bedroom apartment and sold it for $40,000, a.k.a. much more than what Tyler owed. And Tyler never saw a single cent because Minnesota is one of few states that allows counties to pocket the extra cash in sales like these. Tyler argues that Hennepin County violated her Fifth Amendment rights by taking her private property without just compensation. And she also argues that allowing the county to keep the excess money violates her Eighth Amendment rights by subjecting her to excessive fines. If the high court sides with her on the Fifth Amendment issue, it will not have to make a decision on the Eighth Amendment claim. Either way, a decision in the case is expected in late June. Priceless paintings, a replica royal crown, and a Tiffany mustache comb are just a few of the hundreds of items going up for auction later this summer in a massive exhibition of personal goods collected by legendary queen frontman Freddie Mercury. When Mercury died from AIDS-related complications in 1991 at the age of 45, he left his London home and its contents to his close friend Mary Austin, who helped care for the singer in his final weeks. Now, decades later, Austin is offering Mercury's stuff for sale. Around 1,500 items will be up for the highest bidder, among them including handwritten drafts of his songs We Are the Champions and Killer Queen, monogram cocktail napkins, and a vast array of his fabulous stage costumes. If you are not exactly making priceless Freddie Mercury memorabilia money, but still want to see the collection, you are in luck. Before the items settle back at Sotheby's London showroom, where they'll be auctioned off in early September, public exhibitions will be held throughout June in Los Angeles, New York, and Hong Kong. You know, I want to make some sort of joke or something about, you know, the people who might try to, you know, get something from this auction. But I can't talk because I participated in a recent auction myself for Andre Leon Talley. So I will just sit here and mind my business. I'm thrilled for your auction success. (laughs) I have an auction that I want to experience in May for this 
random writer I like from the 1980s that I will probably be the only person there. And so I might be with you very soon. (laughs) And those are the headlines. That's all for today. If you like the show, make sure you subscribe, leave a review, find yourself somebody to love, and tell your friends to listen. And if you're into reading and not just all the ways Kevin McCarthy would sell his soul to pass a single bill like me, What A Day is also a nightly newsletter. Check it out and subscribe at cricket.com slash subscribe. I'm Josie Duffy Rice. I'm Trayvell Anderson. And And where where is Samantha? Samantha? That I know about. You know where she is? No. Uh (laughs) I just know that she's not where she should be. (laughs) Good answer. Good answer. What a Day is a production of Crooked Media. It's recorded and mixed by Bill Lance. Our show's producer is Itzy Quintanilla. And Raven Yamamoto is our associate producer. Jossie Kaufman is our head writer. And our senior producer is Lita Martinez. Our theme music is by Colin Gilliard and Kashaka. Kashaka. 